Welcome to the Free Speech Nation podcast with me, Andrew Doyle. Today, I'm delighted to welcome my guest, Jacob Muchangama. Jacob is a lawyer, a human rights advocate, and the former external lecturer in human rights at the University of Copenhagen. We discussed free speech for very good reason, because Jacob has a new book out. It is called Free Speech, A Global History from Socrates to Social Media. It was a fascinating conversation. I hope you enjoy it. So a lot of the debates at the moment seem to be around big tech and big tech censorship. A lot of people would say that it's not censorship if uh, if Silicon Valley decide to boot people off their platform if they don't happen to agree with their viewpoints. To what extent do you think big tech censorship uh, is comparable with state censorship? Yeah, you know, from a purely legal point of view, um, of, of course, the, the those who say it's not censorship are, are typically right. Uh, and, you know, you would need some kind of rules uh, for, for content moderation uh, on, on platforms. But I think that in these debates, um, people forget or overlook, in my view, that free speech is, is not actually only about laws and constitutional protections and human rights. Even more importantly, arguably, I would say, is the culture of free speech. So this was something that John Stuart Mill was very clear on in On Liberty, he writes in chapter two, that you know, it's, not only, uh, it's, it's not sufficient to have protection against the tyranny of the, of the magistrate, but also you also need protection against society's tendency to impose its views on, on dissenters. And, and, and George Orwell wrote some of the same things. You know, he said that you know, during World War II, the, the British government hadn't been overly censor, censorious. And the main threat to, to free speech actually was that the fact that, that you know, most newspapers were owned by a few, few wealthy men. And also that you know, the intelligentsia had these orthodoxies and, and red lines that you were not uh, allowed to, to, to really cross. Uh, and, and I think that's instructive for us in our age because, you know, free speech is exercised on these platforms. So if you have really unclear rules uh, and, 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 and uh, that, that discriminate on the basis of viewpoints, then that will de facto affect uh, freedom of expression. And therefore, it, it is uh, a serious challenge to, to free expression when, when you suddenly have a huge increase in in the number of uh, comments that are deleted for uh, vague and, and unclear categories like hate speech or, or disinformation or dangerous persons or, or, or whatever. When it comes to those bad ideas and what we now describe as hate speech, uh, does censorship ever work? <laughs> That's a very good question. Uh, and, you know, I guess that depends on your perspective. You know, if you're a Yosef Stalin, then censorship is, is quite good. If you're Xi Jinping, uh, censorship seems to be seems to be working quite well. But democracies, obviously, you know, uh, even even those who who argue in, in favor of hate speech laws in democracies would acknowledge that free speech is a fundamental value. And so there are limits to how far you can go. Uh, and I, you know, in the book, I write about what I call the Weimar fallacy. Uh, and so this is the the, the idea that which which underpins a lot of of laws against hate speech, specifically in Europe, that you know the, the Nazis gained power through uh, democratic means, uh, even if they never gained an, an outright majority, uh, and therefore democracies have to be militant; that they have to crack down on uh, totalitarian ideologies before they uh, uh, gain enough power to to crush democracy. But as I show in the book, uh, there was actually a lot of censorship in the Weimar Republic. So you know, Hitler was banned from speaking. Uh, newspapers started by by Nazis like uh, 
like Josef Goebbels uh, and, and Julius Streicher were, 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 were frequently banned or, or, or these editors were, were punished, but they used it very cleverly, the Nazis, to, to further their own propaganda. And I think most worryingly is the fact that the Nazis used the emergency measures of the Weimar Republic that were supposed to protect democracy to ultimately abolish it. So they used emergency laws to basically um, suspend freedom of expression, uh, freedom of association, uh, and so on, uh, which allowed them to, uh, to, to build a, a one-party uh, totalitarian uh, state. Now, this is not to say that, that, that without uh, restrictions on free speech, the Nazis wouldn't have gained power. It's just, you know, I think if, if you in a democracy argue that, that censorship is necessary, I think the burden of proof should be on you. And, 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 and my reading of, of, uh, of, of that particular history uh, suggests that, that, that cracking down on totalitarian speech with the restrictions and censorship was not an efficient uh, remedy. And, and you, know, you also see it in, in the UK with, with the, uh, in 1965 when uh, sort of introduction of, of, of hate speech laws. And, and I think one of the very first persons to be prosecuted was a black nationalist who had said something about white people, and 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 there were a number of, of 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 black nationalists who were prosecuted in the first day. So that also shows that these laws will often be used against, you know, will, will always be at, defined and enforced by those who are in power, who are, who are the most influential, and and therefore minorities will always face the risk and be 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 vulnerable. So they'll only be a majority away from being. You know, being the target rather than the beneficiary of laws against hatred and offence. Isn't this the problem that, that whenever you have hate speech laws uh, on the statute books, they're always formulated with such a vague and nebulous language? We have the Communications Act in this country, which talks about how uh, if you send material online that is grossly offensive, that would constitute a criminal act. But of course, who on earth knows what grossly offensive means? And recently we've had the Culture Secretary, Nadine Doris, saying that she would like to see uh, laws in place to criminalize jokes that she finds distasteful if they're broadcast on Netflix, say. Um, so you, you, once you have these things established in law, there's no knowing where they can go, who they will be used against. Uh, and and, and from my familiarity with hate speech laws across Europe, no one seems to agree what hate actually means. Yeah, you're absolutely right that, you know, in, in many ways, these, these laws are impossible to draft with sufficient clarity and, and, you know, our subjective biases means that they can be sort of turned against very different groups. And, and it's interesting that, you know, uh, if you go to Yusuf Stalin's uh, Soviet constitution of 1936, it, 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 it promised to, to uh, prohibit hate speech. Um, so, so, so it's something that totalitarian states can also uh, use to, to limit free speech and, and have done uh, enth enthusiastically. But, and of course, you know, uh, if you go to, if you go to to, to Russia today, uh, hate speech laws uh, can be used. Uh, we've seen how uh, hate speech laws are being used, for instance, to protect the Orthodox Church uh, against uh, satire and, and, and mockery. And the West, there seems to be this scope creep of, of hate speech laws that they uh, apply to, to broader uh, set of groups. And some of these groups might then use them sort of uh, against each other. So it could be, you know, religious conservatives uh, against uh, uh, against trans activists and, and vice versa who, who uh, attack each other um, and, and try to, to, to sort of say that they, the, their respective ideologies are hateful. Uh, so, so, so and, and this undermines, I think, 
because in many ways, free speech is, is the antithesis of violence, right? You know, it's what allows people with very different ideas about the good society, you know, deep philosophical differences, religious differences to live together in peace, which is something that not so long ago in history was rare. You know, we couldn't uh, uh, live together in peace. We thought, it, 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 you know, we had to impose our views on dissenters, otherwise uh, society uh, uh, wouldn't hold together. Uh, free speech is, is really the antithesis of, of that. So I think it's quite incredibly sad to see this idea gaining hold that, you know, the social peace needs to be built on restricting certain forms uh, of speech, when, when, when in fact I think speech is 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 what allows us to live together in in, in diverse uh, societies, and especially what protects minorities uh, and traditionally oppressed uh, groups, give them a voice, give them a stake, uh, an opportunity to claim uh, equal justice and, and, and tolerance, um, whereas censorship and restriction have typically been used by dominant groups to. Uh, as, as a vital tool for for oppression and marginalization. And, and I think we've unlearned that that lesson, unfortunately. That seems to me to be where we are living in pr- unprecedented times, because whereas, as you point out in the past, censorship has always been or typically been uh, for the consolidation of power uh, by uh, elites or oppressive groups or the powerful groups. Uh, whereas now we're seeing the, or the most uh, skepticism about free speech that I'm seeing, the people who want to see the First Amendment modified so it doesn't incorporate hate speech, for instance, all of this is coming from people who are saying that we are doing this in order to protect the vulnerable, protect the marginalised. In other words, is there a conflict between the rights of minorities and uh, the rights of everyone to say and think as they wish? No, I, I think it's, 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 it's absolutely the other way around. And, and I think, you know, one of my favorite um, champions of free speech was the the uh, the American abolitionist and orator Frederick Douglass, who himself was born as a slave, but but ran away and became you know one of the most efficient uh, opponents of slavery. And and he gives a great speech in 1860 uh, uh, called a, a plea for free speech in Boston because he's ba- he 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 was about to give this speech at an abolitionist meeting, and it was it was heckled, uh, disrupted by these white slave owners. Uh, not slave owners, but but white Bostonians who uh, who, who thought their commercial interest would, would be would be jeopardized, uh, and uh, and and he gives a speech which really counters all the 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 modern uh, arguments uh, against free speech. You know, he, he says that free free speech uh, is 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 incompatible with with with, uh, with slavery. It will defeat slavery. In another speech, he says that you know the right of free speech. Is a very precious one, especially to the oppressed. And he gives a universalist defense of, of free speech. You know, it doesn't depend on the color of your skin or the size of the wallet. You know, it 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 rests in the in the simple quality of manhood, and and there uh, let it let it rest uh, forever. But you also see it. You know, it's not so much to do with with minorities, uh, majorities per se. But you see, you know, related to this argument that minorities are threatened by free speech is the, the argument that free speech entrenches unequal power positions. And, and, and you know, I think British colonialism is a great example of the contrary. So, so if you go to, to colonial India, for, 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 for instance, you know, Mahatma Gandhi was, was sentenced to six years in prison for sedition in 1921 for, for having had the nerve of, of writing some newspaper articles uh, criticizing uh, British rule. Um, and, and Gandhi gives this great speech in, in trial where he basically argues that everyone should have the right to, to, to criticize political systems or, 
or, or influential people up until such a point where they advocate or promote violence. So he basically, Gandhi at, at the time, has, has a, a more expansive conception of free speech than, 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 than what followed under, under, under British law and also under American law at the time, because at the time in America, if you were you know, a socialist or a, against involvement in, in, in World War I, uh, I people were, were, were sentenced to 10 or, or 20 years uh, in, in prison. Unfortunately, what we see today in, in modern India is that these colonial era uh, laws that, that limit uh, hate speech or blasphemy and sedition are now being used uh, by 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 uh, the Indian government to crack down on on dissenters uh, in uh, in India, and you also see, you know, British-style uh, sedition laws, uh, colonial ones in Hong Kong being used by in in the crackdown on democracy uh, activists. There, uh, we saw how hate speech laws in in apartheid South Africa were used uh, uh, to protect uh, apartheid from 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 criticism and of course one of the reasons why the first amendment offers such a uniquely strong protection in the United States is because the the civil rights movement was instrumental in expanding the protection of free speech by winning a number of of landmark uh, cases that really expanded uh, the, the 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 ability of the civil rights movement to use free speech and, and freedom of association to 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 uh, to make the case uh, for, for against segregation. Uh, so so John Lewis, the the, the famous congressman and, and civil rights leader uh, who died not that long ago, said that you know without free speech and the First Amendment, the civil rights movement would have been a a bird without wings. Uh, and, and, and again, I think this is something that is completely missing this perspective from the debates around around hate speech today. Doesn't it feel a little bit like that argument's been lost, though, when you have groups such as the ACLU, who, of course, historically have been so committed to the notion of free speech, now saying that actually they don't really believe in free speech anymore because it can damage minority groups. That, that, that appears to be uh, the, the belief. And, that, and a lot of sort of free speech groups and free speech activists appear to have gone down that route. And it seems to, to me that, that they have kind of betrayed uh, those, those liberal principles upon which those organizations were founded. Do you think I'm right about that? Yeah, you know, I, I think there's still uh, strong civil libertarian believers in in, in the ACLU who, who who does fight for free speech. But it's certainly true that within AC, the ACLU, there's there, there's this seems to be this split that that not everyone is committed to 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 that traditional ideal of free speech that that once was sort of the pride of the of the ACLU. And you also see it very clearly when you look at attitudes towards free speech in in America, for instance, where younger and more progressive liberal generations are much more skeptical of free speech that offends minorities and more supportive of laws to to limit uh, hate speech. So so where where once it was sort of liberal orthodoxy that 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 tolerance uh, and equality meant tolerating racist speech, that that is no longer the case to the same to the same extent. Um, and I think one of the reasons might be that, you know, we tend to take free speech for granted, those of us who are lucky enough to have grown up with it and not having to fight for it in the same way that the previous generations uh, had. So if you were not, you know, if you were a minority today, uh, you were not, uh, uh, you were not uh, among those who, you know, were being hosed down by, by policemen and, and, and harassed and, and imprisoned for fighting for, 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 um, for racial justice. Uh, and, and and I think it's it's very human that that we take the benefits of of, of a good like free speech for granted, where, whereas and and then sort of have 
focus solely on the harms and costs of, of, of and ugly sides of free speech, which are there and, and have been amplified by social media. We have to be honest about that. But I think uh, that we, 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 we tend to, to adopt measures that where the, the cure is worse than the, than the disease. And, you know, we will find that if we, if we really, um, if, if, if we drastically continue to limit free speech, I think uh, we will start to see consequences that we didn't imagine uh, and, and, and that will be very prejudicial to, to some of the values that we, that we really like and, and appreciate in open democracies. To what extent then do you think it is a generational difference? I mean, I, I'm, I, I continually find myself reading conflicting reports on this. Occasionally, there's a, a quite alarmist survey which, says, which talks about how uh, substantial proportions of younger people think it's okay uh, to silence those they disagree with or who cause offence. Uh, there's even been surveys suggesting they believe that uh, acts of uh, physical violence are sometimes acceptable against those who say offensive things. So and then and then however i talk to young people in universities and things like that and and i and i see a very open minded idea to the idea of free speech so so what what is the reality here yeah I, I think it probably you know depends also on on surveys you know what exactly do they do they ask one of the things that i find is that you know even in in countries with very different cultures than than western ones if you ask straight up, you know, do you support free speech? Uh, we, we did a study like this in, in 2021. Most people will say, yes, they think it's a very important principle. But then, you know, when you ask to specific, supposedly conflicting values, you get very different uh, ideas of, of, of where, where the limits on, on free speech should be. So you could, you, you could have, you know, you could have students who are very committed to the idea of racial justice and equality, who actually believe strongly in free speech, but then have these limits on, on where, uh, you know, specifically on, on, on racism, but who would, uh, who would not be in favor of, uh, of, of, of censoring uh, communism, for instance, or you know, mm. uh, even though you could argue that, that that's also a totalitarian ideology. So you know, if you want to crack down on, on, on one evil, why, why not the other? So, so that does not mean, I think, a wholesale abandonment on, on free speech. It just means that you know, in, a, in an increasingly polarized uh, world, uh, I, I think people of, of different ideologies um, and, 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 and tribalist inclinations have their, their various red lines. And the totality of that is that we eat away at the concept and, of, and, and culture of free speech from different sides, leaving the center increasingly weak. Uh, and, and also because I think, you know, when one side starts to adopt restrictions on free speech, it incentivizes the other side, if you like, to go down the same route um, and, 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 and use it for their purposes. Also, because, you know, if you're afraid that if you're no longer in government, the other side, you know, your political opponents will then come into office and, and then use restrictions on free speech to limit your opportunity to gain power again, then you might, you know, be able to persuade yourself that you need to, to crack down on free speech in order to protect uh, democracy and your and your and your own uh, and your own side, and, and I think that's a very dangerous uh, development. To what extent do you think a lot of this has come about because of you know the new wave of, of what we might call social justice activism, which has its roots in this postmodern worldview that our understanding of reality is entirely constructed through language, and therefore, if you take that through to its logical conclusion, language in of itself can be a form of violence. You always hear that phrase, words are violence. You know, do, do you think that there is that sort of connection between that ideological movement and the rise of free speech scepticism? I would think that 
you know, that might be influential in 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 academic circles, certain academic circles. I, I'm not convinced that this is something that has mass appeal, uh, at least not, you know, to at, at the very sort of um, intricate, uh, abstract theo uh, theoretical uh, level. Um, but but, but you, uh, so I think, you know, certainly among some universities uh, and, and academic circles, that, that is that is influential and that might have an outsized influence on, on debates given the, the uh, the prominent access of, of academics to, to the public sphere. But I think, you know, more generally, I, I just think that, you know, as human beings, we, you know, our, our default mold, our default software uh, tilts towards intolerance. And, and then we've developed this, this great patch that we've, that, 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 that called free speech and tolerance built on top of it. But that, you know, constantly needs to be, to, to, to be protected uh, because otherwise our default um, installation mode will, will override it and, and, and will tilt back towards uh, intolerance. And I think we're all vulnerable uh, to that. So, so, so it's not only, you know, social justice, uh, you know, you also see in the US context, for instance, increasingly, you know, Republicans adopting these bills that will try to limit uh, history and, 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 and issues on race and, and gender, even in higher education, which, which, which is, is very much the same intolerance impulse, just with, with different targets. I know we're running out of time, so I just want to sort of wrap up. But I, I wanted to ask you about, I mean, you've written this book now uh, at, I think, a very an opportune time to do so, because it does strike me that free speech is something that needs to be defended continually in every new generation. It's, it's not a battle that ever really goes away, and it's important to restate the case. Are you optimistic uh, that this, this, the liberal uh, worldview will ultimately win out? It's a difficult question. I don't know. For some reason, I am um, because I think free speech is such a powerful uh, idea, and I think that there'll be sort of a, a point when people start to see, you know, if 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 more and more laws are, are being adopted, I think people will start revolting, and 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 when they see that that it has consequences for themselves, that sort of the the limited idea of harm that they had in mind when they supported restrictions on free speech actually might affect themselves or or ideas that they find. Completely harmless. Uh, I think pe people will, will will start to revolt. Uh, of course, you know there's a huge challenge with authoritarian states, the rise of China, and so on, which which poses challenges. But that ironically may also be a rallying point for liberal democracies, in the same way that you know during the Cold War, we many Western democracies looked at themselves and said, you know, free speech is part of our identity. Maybe the confrontation with China will will, will serve as a rallying cry to see, you know, free speech is really what sets us apart from from uh, Xi Jinping's uh, digital juggernaut. So, so, so uh, for some weird reason, I am actually optimistic. Oh, what a nice positive note to end on. Jacob, thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you, Andrew. Really enjoyed it. Thanks. Bye. This has been the Free Speech Nation podcast with me, Andrew Doyle, and my guest, Jacob Muchangama. It's been a slightly shorter episode this week because we had a few technical issues. I hope that doesn't bother you too much. Please do come back next week. We'll have another fabulous guest. And of course, like and subscribe and do all the usual stuff like that. Oh, and check out Jacob's book. It is called Free Speech, A Global History from Socrates to Social Media. That's available as of next month. See you next time. <laughs> <laughs>